Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. We come now to that time of our service when we open God's Word, God's God-breathed Word. I love Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That is the power of the living Word. I got a uh, text this morning from... uh, Another pastor in town, he sends me a text every week or every other week or something like that, but pretty often just to encourage me, and he sent me this quote this morning. Don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the Word. Man, that is good. That's Jerry Bridges. That's good. That is good. Stay in the Word. Then he concludes it by preach the Word today. I I love that brother who sends me that encouraging words every week, but uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of this gospel. We're in a familiar passage this morning. I hope familiarity does not cause you to miss to miss the things that John has here for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John 3, 1 through 3, these were read to you earlier. There was a man of the Pharisees, verse 1 says... His name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This passage deals with the most important question that a person could ask and have answered for them. How do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? Popular culture says this, just die. Just die. When you die, you automatically go to heaven. You're transported into the clouds, and somehow you are taken to a place where there's a bright light, and your friends are waiting for you there. You just die, and you automatically go to heaven. Everybody in this world who dies automatically goes to heaven. The guy I met this past week, he told me that, yes, that is his philosophy. You die, you go to heaven, you actually become an angel because God needs help in heaven. And so there's all kinds of ideas about how you get to heaven. Popular culture, everybody goes there, just die. The religion world doesn't see it that way. The religion world has uh, prerequisites to go to heaven. I like a book that Nate Pickowitz in, turned me, or, or pointed me to um, by Ray Comfort on comparing world religions. And it's a very good book. I uh, can't main, think of the title at the moment, but it's a very good book, and I was looking through this, and it's interesting that all the world religions require something. They all require something. It's not a matter of just dying. Uh, they don't believe that. Islam, for example, let me give you a couple of examples. Islam, for example, says children are born sinless and have a clean slate. As they live their lives, they do good things and they do bad things. God will judge everyone according to their deeds in this life. This is Islam. In the end, if a person has done more good deeds than bad, the good cancels out the bad and Allah forgives them. And they go to paradise. The problem is, the problem is, no, 
No one knows how good good enough is. There's no standard. There's no standard. The only scorecard is being held by Allah. And you don't know if you've done enough and therefore you live in fear and security of where you're going when you die. The Quran says it this way, those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will be successful. But those whose balance is light will be those who lost their souls in hell, they will abide. That's Surah 540. Just keep the balance, keep the, keep the weight on the good things, outbalancing the bad, and you will go to paradise. They believe in the condemnation of hell. For those who have not done enough good things, they will not go to heaven. Um, He says uh, they just need to live by strict Islamic law and work tirelessly to tip the scales in their favor. You, You atone for your sin by your own works. That's how you do it. You atone for your sins in this life by your own works. Buddhism, interesting. Buddhism, very involved in complicated religion. Ray Comfort talks about it. It's the law of cause and effect. When you die, you're reincarnated into a higher or lower life form based on what you did in this life. That's your called your karma. Their goal after working through all the reincarnation steps says you will eventually arrive at the highest state, which is called nirvana, which is complete liberation from this cycle of life thing but they must first subscribe to four noble truths, five precepts of morality, and a noble path. To, in the end, you still don't know. In the end, you still don't know if you're going or to come back as a god or a goldfish. You don't know. You have no idea. Mormons. Mormons sound like Christianity sometimes because they use a lot of our terms and a lot of our Language, they use words like Jesus and Savior and sin and baptism, but understand they have different meanings to all those things. But their ultimate goal in Mormonism, and understand this and understand this, the ultimate goal in Mormonism is not so you can get to heaven and worship God, it is so that you can get to heaven and be a God. That is the goal, to become a God. In fact, the God, Elohim, used to be a man like you and I are, and he became a god. Understand the twisted theology of Mormonism. Ray Comfort says, faith, they believe in faith in Jesus, except Joseph Smith and his successors as God's mouthpiece. Repent, be baptized, be members of a Latter-day Saints church, keep commandments, keep laws, ordinances of the church, do good works, tithe at the church, keep words of wisdom, which is abstaining from alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and be found worthy. And then when you earn your way to the celestial heaven, you get a temple recommendation, which is the only way you can enter a Mormon temple, by the way, is recommended to go in there. And after you've completed your temple work, you will have a celestial marriage, do your genealogy work, be baptized, do baptisms for the dead, go through various rituals, learn, he says, a secret handshake, and then you will be able to go into the third level of heaven. My goodness, I'm tired just reading it. And you reach that highest heaven, you will then become a God. You will then become a God if you meet all of those conditions. And your future is secure then. But what is the point, Rod, of you telling us this stuff? It's because millions of people are confused about how a person 
goes to heaven. And that's what our text is this morning, because you have a religious man, a very religious man, a very extremely religious man, one of the most religious men, and he is confused about this. You recall last week we ended in John chapter 2. And we're told in John chapter 2 that Jesus is able, by his divine gaze, to look into the heart of any man. He doesn't need anybody to testify about man because he knows what is in the heart of man. You see that in 24. Many people were believing, verse 23, in him because of his signs, but Jesus, on his part, was not believing in their belief, basically is what that says, for he knew all men. See that? He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In terms of the context of John, let me just say something D.A. Carson says here. Jesus being able to get to the heart of an issue before anybody says anything is something we're going to see happen in the next two chapters of the book of John. You're going to see it today with Nicodemus. You're going to see it with the Samaritan woman. You're going to see it with the Gentile official in John chapter 4. And you're going to see it by the man who's begging at the pool of Siloam in John chapter 5. Where Jesus knows what's in the heart. Knows what's going on. You're going to see that. You see that today with Nicodemus. Also notice the word that's used at the end of verse 25 of John chapter 2. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Take away chapter 3 and just read the first sentence of chapter, excuse me, of chapter 3, and now there was a man. You see that? He knew what was in a man. He could see into a man, and then there was a man. Boyce makes a good point in saying that Nicodemus represents all men who stand before God in need of salvation, who don't know how to get to heaven. There was a man named Nicodemus. There was a man who did not have faith, did not have what saving faith looks like. He points to him here in John chapter 3, verse 1. First off, let me tell you a few things about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a man whose name means victor over the people. Nicodemus is a Greek name, and he's a Hebrew, indicating he came from a wealthy Jewish family. Wealthy Jewish families expose their children to both Hebrew culture and Greek culture meaning very possibly he was educated in some Greek schools, maybe as a Hellenistic Jew, who knows. The point is, uh, he came from a very wealthy family and had contact with Greek culture. Three things verse 1 tells us about him. He was a man of the Pharisees. Let me tell you something about the Pharisees. You may know this already, but keep following me on this. After around 600 B.C., 
the Jews are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. After 70 years, they are released, just like God said they would be, and they get to go back to their land. They return to their land in Israel. The walls are torn down, the city is leveled, and the temple is destroyed. Jews were suffering an identity crisis. Jews were suffering, who are we and what are we about? Jews were suffering. They couldn't even get motivated to rebuild the walls, rebuild, except when Nehemiah came, or rebuild the city or rebuild the temple. They were suffering and struggling. It was a horrible time in their history, coming out of Babylonian captivity, and they had lost their way. Ezra brings about a revival, good thing, gets them back into the Bible, back into the scriptures. There were temporary things like that that happened along the way. They built the temple eventually, and in the 167 BC, when the Greeks conquered the Persians, and the Greeks were now ruling that land, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the leader of the Greeks, came into the temple in Jerusalem, sacrificed a pig in the most holy place of the temple, and he cooked the meat, the pork, and shoved it down the throats of the priest. This guy was horrible in a lot of ways, but he totally desecrated the temple of God. The people were further driven into despair. And then along comes a man named Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees organizes the Jews, gets them organized to where they can defeat the Greeks and run them out of the city. That was a huge victory. He's a huge hero in Judaism. You can read about him in the intertestamental period. Josephus writes about him. The Apocrypha writes about him. But that was a tremendous time when the Greeks were thrown out of the city. And Judas Maccabees began calling on Jews to come forward, loyal Jews, nationalistic Jews to come forward and let's rebuild our culture. Let's get back to the law of God. Let's get back to being God's people. Let's make that our priority. Let's get our identity focused once again on who we are as God's chosen people. And one of the groups that came forward were called the Perishim. The Pharisees, they, had just, they were kind of a small group at that point, but they were extremely loyal to Judaism, extremely loyal to the Word of God. They believed that the Word of God should be lived out. They believed that the Word of God was central to everything in Judaism, the first five books especially. And so the Perishim rose up during that time period. And the problem is that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Perishim have pretty much, they've gained in popularity. They're probably the best of the Jews. There's only about 6,000 of them. But they're the best of the Jews in terms of their, their righteousness, in terms of their morals. The problem is they had built a, an ethical cult within Judaism. Basically, it was just an, a lot of outward religion. Here's, their, here's what they, they believed. They believed that the scribes were the ones that would interpret the law. The Pharisees were the ones that would tell you how to live it. 
And so what they did was they came up with a fence around the Word of God and said, this is how you can keep the law of God and came up with 600 laws on how you can keep the law of God. For example, they came up with a law that said you can eat an egg on the Sabbath. Remember, you've got to keep the Sabbath holy, but you can eat an egg on the Sabbath. Just be sure you kill the chicken the next day because he worked on the Sabbath. They refused you to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And that would be working on the Sabbath. They came up with a law that said, uh, you, can, you can drink vinegar and swallow it on the Sabbath. But you can't gargle it, because that's working. I'm just giving you some examples. Some examples of how, they, how meticulous they came, became in applying the word of God. And that's the reason Jesus rebukes them. Because as long as you kept these rules, you were okay with God. As long as you kept all of these laws and all of these rules, and they were continually trying to impose them on people, at the time of Jesus especially, and this is how you can be righteous, and this is how you can know you're right with God, and you're going to be in the kingdom of God. It was all outward, all outward. They tried to make the law of God uh, attainable, by all of these extra laws, all these extra t- traditions, all of the oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were zealous, um, and they, they would believe they were the religious elite, and they were prideful, and that's the reason Jesus eventually rebukes them and calls them hypocrites. You're just whitewashed tombs, you look good on the outside, but you're, ter- you're, you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. You're corrupt on the inside. So Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. And he was very popular and very well liked. Notice also he was, in verse 1 of John chapter 3, he was a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was part of the Sanhedrin, part of the Council of Seventy. Actually, there were 71 because one of the members of the Sanhedrin would be the high priest. So you had a mixture of Sadducees and Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. They were like the Supreme Court of Israel. They would also, at times, legislate things. They were given a response. They could do certain things that Rome would allow them to do in capital situations, but generally they ruled, they ruled the Jews. They were the ruler of the Jews. Thirdly, you'll notice, you have to go down to verse 10 to find this. In verse 10, he was the teacher of Israel. Talking about Nicodemus now. I'm talking about this man standing in front of Jesus. This man that represents all men. This is the best of men. But he's got the same need everybody else has. And this is the teacher, it says to us in verse 10, of Israel. Definite article, not just a teacher in Israel, not just another rabbi in Israel, the teacher in Israel. Meaning he had a very significant position in Israel as the teacher, top dog. 
If anyone was going to represent Israel, it was Nicodemus. If anyone was worthy of heaven, it was Nicodemus. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Listen, he came to Jesus by night. A lot of speculation about the by night, okay? Some people say it was because he was a secret disciple. No, not right now he's not. He's not a disciple at all right now. He, he later is called a secret disciple in John 19, but right now he's not in the book of John, in the chronology here. Why he came by night, possible, didn't want others to see him, possible. I don't know that he really cares about that. I think it has more to do with the fact that crowds were so big during the day, maybe night was the best time to get a conversation. Maybe by night, by night is known for a time when rabbis would talk and discuss things. So we don't need to make a whole lot about the by night at this point. I think it's very, very obvious, I think, to me, uh, that he just simply wanted to, to get an opportunity, was looking for an opportunity, and it happened to be at night. But that's not for sure, but we can just leave it with that. He says, Rabbi to him, I mean, he says, Rabbi, referring to Jesus as an equal, though Jesus, he knows Jesus has not been educated in all those great schools that Jesus, that he, uh, Nicodemus, has been educated in. He acknowledged Jesus as a teacher, very respectful. He says, we know you are a teacher sent from God. Who is the we? The we could be the other leaders, um, at this point, the leaders are not opposed to Jesus. The opposition will pick up by about chapter 5. But right now, that's not a lot of opposition from the leaders toward Jesus. So basically, he could be speaking for some other leaders, or he could just simply be hiding behind the, crowd, the, the, the group, uh, just because we do that sometimes when we want to make people think, other people think like we're thinking or something. I don't know. But the point is, the point is that he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus and acknowledged that Jesus, the signs that Jesus was performing were not signs that just anybody could do. This man must be from God. For no one else can do these signs unless God is with him. It doesn't mean he is it doesn't mean he is believing in Jesus. It doesn't mean he is declaring him to be the Messiah. It doesn't mean that he is doing any of those kinds of things like Nathaniel and Philip and Peter and Andrew did earlier in chapter 1. That's not what he's doing. He's simply coming. Maybe the question in his heart is, who are you? Maybe. We don't know. For sure. So, so Nicodemus, being a teacher in Israel notices Jesus, comes to Jesus, not sure what he was talking about. He could have been talking about what most Jews were talking about at this time. Is the kingdom coming? Are you the Messiah, maybe? Maybe he was asking that question. Maybe he's talking about those kinds of things. Maybe that's what motivated him to come talk to Jesus. We don't know exactly. But we do know from what Jesus says in the next verse that Jesus gazes into his heart 
and addresses a, a burning issue within him. A burning issue within him, and that is, how can I get into the kingdom of God? You want to know who I am? You can't truly know who I am unless, verse 3 says, unless you are born again. John 3.3, Jesus answered and said to him, it's interesting, no question is even asked. See that? Gazing into his heart. Jesus answered him. Jesus saw something in his heart that pointed to this response on Jesus' part. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen to me. Truly, truly, listen to me. Kingdom of God, talking about that realm of God's kingdom, that eternal life, heaven. That's what we're talking about. You want to see heaven? That cannot happen unless, excuse me, unless you are born again. I think it goes to the true motive uh, as Jesus, the way he answers this. The issue is salvation. Salvation. Born again, only way to salvation, only way into heaven. Anotheme is the word, it's the word for begin again, born again, the word again. Some have said that word could be translated to be born from above, and that is true. You could, see, you could say, you must be born from above. That is a true statement. I don't think it changes the meaning here at all. But the way, the way Nicodemus responds to Jesus makes you say, no, he's talking about being born again. Because, Jesus, because Nicodemus is going to say, what do you mean? I have to get back in my mother's womb? You see that? So that tells you, born again is the correct wording here, not born from above though they say the very same thing. You mean i got to get back in my mother's womb again? You see that in verse 4, 5. Why birth? Why birth? Let me see if I can bring this to, to a conclusion here. Why does he say birth, born again? Just think about all I just said about these other religions of the world. And Jesus says, you're not going to heaven unless you're born again. First, birth is something that happens to you. There's not a person in this room that did anything to bring about their birth. You make no contribution to your birth. You cannot be in the womb and say, oh, I think I'll be born today. You can't do that. There's no book on how you can birth yourself. That's the first reason he uses this word birth. We all have this in common. We're all born. We all experience a physical birth. Secondly, when you are born, you come with nothing. You come with no clothes on. You come with no accolades or accomplishments. You come with nothing into this world. You have no status. You have no wealth. You have no accomplishments. You have no trophies on your wall. You have no, no accolades from anybody about anything you've ever done because you've done nothing. Birth is a, a great picture of our salvation, of what our salvation truly is. Born again, it's the same word as regeneration. It's the same word of being transformed from within. You must be born again. You must be regenerated. 
And we'll, we're going to open that up more as we go through this chapter, uh, chapter 3. Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, you must do that birth thing again. You must do that birth thing again. Just think about that birth thing, and you need to do that again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. It's not a physical birth he's talking about. It's a spiritual birth. You must be regenerated. Wayne Grudem calls it, regeneration is a secret act of God on which he imparts new spiritual life in us. Do you see why last week when we're saying people make professions of faith and that doesn't mean they're a Christian? You can say anything outwardly you want, but unless regeneration takes place, there is no salvation. Jesus did not impart himself to those who were simply making verbal professions. Some he may have, but not to everyone because he knows everyone has some, some of those people had some deficiency in their faith. It was not saving faith. Let me have you just turn one place. Look over to John chapter 1, verse 12. John 1, verse 12. We looked at this a while back. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He qualifies that in verse 13. Who were born? Those who, back to verse 12, those who received him were those who were born. Were born. Those who received him and got the right to become, become children of God are those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See that? They're born. We're born. And that being born again enables us to receive him. And just another one I'll read is Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of our God, our Savior, and his love for, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of anything we did, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, talking about their former life. He says this in 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is everybody's testimony. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of, our fl- uh, desires of the flesh. Nature, we were children of wrath. Verse 4, but God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. That's regeneration. He makes you alive. It's a new birth. It's by the will of God. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But the point is, Jesus tells Nicodemus all of this Nicodemus was a religious fanatic. uh, He kept every law the best of his ability. He had lots of money. He was the Jew among Jews. Most Jews thought just because you were born a Jew meant you were going to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus just blows that thinking away by saying, no, you won't see the kingdom of God unless 
you are born again. Unless you have a heart change, unless something takes place within you that changes your desires, your nature, uh, your passions, your wants, Christ becomes so attractive to you that you desire him and love him. God puts that in you when you're regenerated. God sheds his love abroad in your heart when you're regenerated. He gives you a desire for his word when you're regenerated. He gives you a desire for his law when you're regenerated. God puts his law in your heart, puts his spirit within you. That's regeneration. We'll see that more in the coming weeks. Nicodemus, your heart is cancerous. Nicodemus, you need a new heart. That's what he's telling him. Nicodemus, your, all of your accomplishments will not make you right before God. Unless you are born again, you will die in your sin. And that's what I say to you this morning. If you don't know Christ, if you have not been regenerated, if you have not been changed from within, it doesn't matter what profession of faith you might have made verbally. It does not matter what you did at camp. It does not matter what you did walking an aisle. It does not matter what you did in joining a church. The question is, have you been born again? Have you been regenerated from within? Cry out to God. Say, God, I see this. I w- look at this. I want this. I want heaven. And your word is clear. I will not see heaven. I will not see heaven. I will not see heaven unless I'm born again. Born me again, God. I can't do it myself. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for the truths that we have looked at around Nicodemus. I know, God, there are people in this room this morning who think they're okay. They have tried to make sure the good things they do in life outweigh the bad things. They have an approach of work salvation that I can somehow do enough to make God like me and be pleased with me. They think that just because they've been born into a Christian family that that's enough. And God, your word is clear that we must be born again. We think of all the millions of people in this world who are believing lies of popular culture that says just die, everybody goes there. All the obituaries say that. Or false religions which say you've got to do something. Along comes Jesus and say, no, it's not what you do, it's what I do to you. That's our message, Lord. That's the message of the gospel. And we proudly proclaim that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.